what we're seeing as we go through the book of Acts is uh, it's, it's all about Christ. They're not ashamed of the gospel. I have a pastor friend down in central Illinois, and he was preaching through the Old Testament, and he was consistently bringing it back to Christ. Where, and yet he, where the Old Testament text, it's not obvious that he's speaking of Christ, and yet he would consistently show how it was pointing and preparing the way for Christ. And one of the things that might surprise you is there's sometimes where people in the church don't want that. They don't want the Old Testament to be preached, but then they don't want it to be consistently connected to Christ. I know that. I've heard that before. So there's this consistent pressure both from within the church and without the church, to not talk about Jesus. Because that is the name that offends. That's the name that offends. And so we have this consistent danger of either not talking about him or talking about him in a way that's very flippant, very light. And here we want to learn from these apostles and from this early church of What does it look like to love Christ? What does it look like to bear the cross? They have a boldness, but it's not a cockiness here. It's not a self-centered, look-at-me-ness. It's a concern for the eternal souls and salvation of others that they will not stop talking about Jesus. And then, of course, we have the The reality that Acts, I think, was likely written maybe to some kind of ruling person because the church was, especially in the first 150, 200 years, largely condemned. And a lot of false things were believed about the church. And so this was written likely as an apology to say, no, 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 those things aren't true. Look look at what we're like. And so you'll see here twice that the apostles arrested twice, and it's shown just very clearly by the facts of how right they are to vindicate them. This is written to vindicate the church, and we should see in this text the great care of God for his church, and that God will always vindicate his people. God has us. He cares for us. As long as we are standing for the gospel... As long as we're not compromising there, we can be assured, often in this life, but always in the life to come, that God's people will always, always, always be vindicated. I want to read the entirety of our section. I'm going to begin in chapter 5, verse 12 of Acts. We can go all the way to the end of chapter 5. Acts is one of those books in the Bible. This isn't true of every book. I'm not that kind of super spiritual person. There's a few books, Genesis, mostly, Acts, Gospels, and I, I like reading them, and I don't want to stop. It's that kind of moving, gripping, and this is one of those sections. Um, but if you're into Marvel movies, this might be boring. Let the reader discern the meaning there. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico was the part of the temple where everyone was welcome. Jew, Gentile, male, female, everybody could be there. It was very public, very open, everyone could be there. So the church was there. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that these carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them out, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man, men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you continue to deal well with us according to your promise. 
And so teach us judgment and knowledge. Teach us to keep and believe in your commandments. When we go astray, we ask that we would be afflicted, that you might bring us back to your word. You are good and do good. Teach us your statutes. It is good that we're afflicted that we might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. May it be like that among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we see that it's all about the gospel. If we would go to the back, the beginning of Acts, we see in Acts chapter 2, they're preaching the gospel. Peter preaches Christ. The church begins. Shortly after that, they're commanded for the first time in Acts chapter 4 to stop preaching Jesus. They're commanded not to preach. And in Acts 4.19, Peter says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. So they continue to preach Christ, even though they've already been commanded not to. Then here in our text, they're out preaching again. They're not doing it in private, quietly. They're in the most public place, preaching Christ. They're arrested, they're rescued, and they go right back to it. They're arrested again. They're beaten. Here the beating is, is, is uh, whipping, the, the 40 lashes minus one. 40 was considered a death sentence. Minus one was like to within an inch of your life. This, this wasn't a few knocks about the head. And what do they do? They continue to, in public, from house to house, teach and preach Christ. And so they're not ashamed of the gospel. They have no shame of the words of God. That's what Acts is all about. And so this is what we're consistently meant to learn. Are we as Christians all about Christ? This is the one thing that we will not stop doing, calling people to love and trust and repent and believe in Jesus. And then again, I said they're vindicated. That's what Acts is going to consistently do. It's going to consistently hold up the, the main thing that Christians are to be about, the kingdom of God, and it's going to hold up that God will vindicate his church. And the church at, at the time of this writing, so this is later on at the end of the apostles, this is when persecution was breaking out sporadically and would soon break out Roman Empire-wide, they would seek to obliterate the church. This is written to vindicate them. Miracles, we'll see that throughout this. Miracles are meant not to communicate to us that this should be the norm for every Christian in every church. It's very specific. It's very rare to the apostles, but it's to vindicate them. That God is with them. That God's Spirit is among them. And it's noted that all are healed. There's no, the church is the kind of place where we don't do this just for the rich. We don't do this just for the powerful. The church is the kind of place that loves all sinners. We don't discriminate. We, we care for all men and women, and that, that's meant to vindicate. We see the vindication in the, just the rash crazy behavior of the ruling elite. They're so foolish. What they're doing not only harms themselves, but harms everybody. There's no good. It's just out of their mind, blind with jealousy. And then we see the vindication and the miraculous rescue by the angel. And the irony here is that the Sadducees, if you remember, are like the liberals. 
They don't believe in anything supernatural. They don't believe in a life to come. They don't believe in angels. And so I think it's just lovely of God who could have just opened the doors on anybody, makes it clear that there's angels. And then, of course, they have the support of the people. This is meant to vindicate. This is a a common kindness of God that the church here, even though it's opposed by the ruling elite, has the popular support of the people. And then he's vindicating the right of the church to teach according to the Word of God. And we got to, we'll get back to this in a moment, but just let that stick in your head. If one thing should stick in your head, the one thing where we must stand firm above all else is the preaching of the God's Word. The right of the church to teach its doctrine. That's what they'll fight over. That's what they'll die for. That's the one thing that they're willing to go aggressively against. And we see the vindication of one of their most elite, highly thought of teachers wisely restraining their madness, this Gamaliel guy. Gamaliel, we'll talk about Paul in coming weeks. The Apostle Paul was taught by this man. This man was considered like, like the place, if you wanted your son or daughter to get the best training, he was it. And so this is vindicating for the church. And the way that Gamaliel talks about it in verse 39, oh, I'm sorry, um, yeah, yeah, verse 39 is, he seems to have some understanding, some um, inclination towards that, man, these guys are on God's side. And so that, that's vindication for the church. The most well thought of ruling elite teacher seems to be indicating, this is, this is of God. And so they're vindicated. And then they're vindicated because in a court of law... They would be found innocent. They're vindicated by their demeanor. They rejoice. They're happy. They're not cranky. They're not belligerent. They're not rude. They're not self-centered. They are glad to suffer for the name of Jesus. And isn't that true? What often vindicates us is just our attitude. So those are the two things happening here. This text is often one that Christians turn to to understand how should the church relate to authority, civil authority. This text. This text in Romans 13, of course. And so there's two rules, if you would, two principles for how we as Christians should relate, how the church should relate to the civil government. Those two rules are Romans 13, the general, overarching, kind of universal command is be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because God has established them, right? Every authority has been established by God. President Biden was established by God. Governor Evers was established by God. And the general, overarching command from God is that the church, Christians, will be subject to the governing authorities. Except, in the very limited instance where the governing authorities demands our disobedience to God, and particularly when it demands that we be quiet about Christ, 
when it attempts to tell us what to teach. So I want us to, I, I know you've heard this before, but this is obviously very important in our day, where those who govern us are proving to be unjust in many ways and incompetent to coerce us against our conscience, that we must consistently return to the principles of how do we relate. And the overarching principle is we are to be subject because God has established them. And don't forget, these guys aren't writing at a time when the governing authorities are good or competent. They had rulers just like our rulers. So what can we learn from this? Well, there's a clash of kingdoms always. And we see the jealousy of the ruling elite. We ought to be care of our, careful for our own jealousy. Jealousy makes you blind. Je- jealousy, except for the godly kind of jealousy, always leads to, to very foolish and, and, and stupid behavior. But what, what we can learn is we must honor authority. Notice how the disciples interact with the ruling the, the, the rulers. There's, there is just no hint of sarcasm, of reviling. There is no, the song, Go Brandon, or, you know it, right? That, that should not be among Christians. I know that we'd giggle at it, because it is funny. But that is not how we should talk to those that God has put in authority, should it? How do they talk? Well, they talk very frankly. We must obey God rather than man. Just very honestly and directly. They preach the gospel to him. I wish that Christians would do that more, shouldn't it? Now, there, there are times where we must say no the governing authorities. And it's whenever they try to tell the church how to do church. And, and, and what we should preach. So, so, so we should honor authority. But we should not yield to the civil authority where they try to limit or coerce our worship. There may be times where they forbid our gathering where we should say, no, we're, we're going to gather. We see that here. They're gathered in public in the temple, and they say, stop it. And where do they go back to? Right back there. Because the civil government does not have authority. Our government, any other kind of government, should never tell the church not to meet. We have a right to meet by God. Of course, in the, in the preaching, they do not have a right Tell us what we can and cannot say according to God's word. We should stand firm there. So we should learn from their example. We should never cease teaching and preaching Christ. Now, of course, that applies to you, not only here. That applies mainly to me and the other pastors and elders, but you and your daily life. What keeps you from calling more people to repent and believe in the gospel? What? What keeps you from calling those that you work with or those that you'll gather with over Thanksgiving? They just need Jesus. What keeps you? 
Well, it's the, it's, it's what these governing authorities attempted to do to keep them silent. It was a threat of force, but it was just the shame. You'll notice here that they put them in a public prison in verse 18. Why does it note public? It was meant to shame them. It's the same thing with the, the lashing, the flogging. Of course, that's very painful, but it's also very shameful to be stripped naked in public, put on display for everybody and to be treated like that. It's meant to shame you. And so there's great power in shame. And that, that's what's going on in our day, of course. It's, it's, not, it's not really the threat of force. It's not really the threat of them taking. It's the shame. It's the soft totalitarianism of our day. It's the pressure from media and others. It's the pressure you feel in the workplace that, that you have come to believe that that's not a place that you're allowed to tell others about Christ. Because it's shameful. Now, of course, I don't mean at all that we should be rude or unkind. We, we all have met Christians who are very unhelpful to Christ because of how rude they are. That's not what we're talking about. But it's an overarching concern for people who are apart from Christ and so are under the wrath of God. And we know that they will go to hell. And we care about that. And we don't care so much for our reputation or for the embarrassment that it will cause us because we love them. And so we want to call them to Christ. We want to invite them to church. We want to give them something to read. We want to pray for them. We, we want to live in such a way that they know that we are Christians, that Christ is our Savior and Lord. And I think as we talk about authority and how we're to relate to civil authority, we don't care so much for that as we do for just doing what we want to do. And so you may have this in your own house. If a spouse or children or in-laws who think you're a nut for following Jesus and you're about to go into Thanksgiving and Christmas with these people who think that because you stay at home as a mother that you're giving away your life and that you're doing something wrong and that you're being kept from what you could do in this world. and You're just nutty. You're just too zealous. You're too much of a religious person. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. And then we see here in the relation between the civil government and the church is this. We do not depend on the civil government. We depend on God. This text is meant to communicate the great God care that God has for his church. Isn't this wonderful, this angel? During the night in verse 19, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Notice the specificity. The angel opened it. The angel brought them out. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 91, 11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Do you believe in angels? Do you believe that angels are, as Hebrew says, ministering spirits sent by God to care for us? Isn't this the kindness of God? God only created a whole physical, material world that's ours. Everything is ours. 
He created an unseen spiritual world, populated them with angelic beings of all manner and kinds. Why? What for? To care for you. To protect you, to deliver you, to rescue you. At the church I grew up in, there was, at what time when I was a kid, you know, a really sentimental picture that I like to make fun of and the kids like to make fun of. It was a, somebody about to fall into a river or something and an angel holding them. Oh, how silly. That's true, though. It's wonderful. Now, this doesn't mean that we'll always receive physical deliverance in the here and now. Of course, that isn't true. In the next chapter, one of the first seven deacons will be stoned to death. This is meant to communicate to you, ultimately, God will always vindicate and deliver his church. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell cannot send it. The church does win. It doesn't win by our own strength. It doesn't win by our own means. It doesn't win by our own popularity or money. It wins because God loves his church and has created an entire unseen realm to care for her. Because he bought us with the blood of his son. So do we have angels who keep us, protect us, and minister to us? Absolutely. Isn't that wonderful, kids? Isn't that wonderful? Angels. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says that we ought to make sure that we practice hospitality because we may be ministering to angels unaware, as uh, uh, Abraham did. I almost said Moses. Moses may have done it too. So, Christians are always going to have trouble in the world. Sometimes we may be thinking that because God loves us, we should be spared trouble. But Jesus said, before you become a Christian, make sure you evaluate whether or not you want to because you're going to be bearing a cross. Jesus promised you will have trouble in this world. Why does God bring trouble to you? Whatever it is, why? He doesn't mean it to cause you harm. He means it to exercise your faith and patience. Why does God bring conflict with your children? To teach you patience and humility, long-suffering and kindness. Why does God bring you colds and seasonal flus? Teach you your need for Him and dependence on Him. Why does God... Bring you economic problems. Why does God bring you shelves at Walmart that aren't as full as you'd like? He's always exercising your faith. So this is normal. Why? Because God is more concerned to make you more like Jesus than he is to give you everything that you want. This is what good fathers and mothers are concerned for with their children. Isn't it? We care more that our children have eternity and are becoming more like Jesus than they do that they get everything they want. The angel tells them, after being commanded to stop talking about Jesus, to go right back to the temple and speak the words of life. And they do. In verse 31, well, verse 30 and 31 he preaches the gospel again. 
Jesus was killed by being hanged on a cross, which is the most shameful death that could be imagined. The curse of God was upon anybody who was nailed to a cross or a tree. God raised him from the dead. He was vindicated. He was exalted to the right hand of God to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. In those two terms, repentance and forgiveness of sins is the whole of the gospel. Those are the words of this life. Those two words summarize the entirety of eternal life. What is repentance? How would you describe repentance to a child? Well, repentance begins not firstly with us turning from sin, but firstly with God turning us alive inside. Repentance always begins with God's work in us. No one would ever repent apart from the grace of God. How hard is it for you to, to say to somebody that you were wrong? <laughs> How hard is that for you? When's the last time you actually looked at somebody and said, hey, I was wrong? Compared to how many times you were actually wrong. What's the ratio? Should be a one-to-one ratio, right? Is it a hundred-to-one? I doubt it's even that. Why? Because we're so proud. We are so sinful. You would never, ever say to God, I was wrong. Unless God took out your stubborn, prideful heart and put in a spiritually alive heart. It's always an inner renewal. We must be made new by God. And that making of new by God leads to outward holy living. Not all at once. It is a restoration to God's image increasingly as we go throughout life where we learn to say those magic words. I was wrong to God and to others. Please forgive me. God, help me. I don't want to keep doing this. And then we actually do experience victory over our sin throughout our lives. That's repentance. And we do it because we love God and love others. That's the motive. It's always love. That's repentance. And he's telling them, this repentance is available to you through faith in Jesus Christ. That's life because we're enslaved to sin. You can be freed. God not only promises to, to cleanse the record, but to cleanse us in our lives from the enslaving power of sin that we don't have to do it anymore. We don't have to keep looking at those images on the screen. We don't have to keep responding that way to our spouse when they do the littlest thing that irritates us. We don't have to. That's repentance. What is forgiveness of sins? Forgiveness of sins is, of course, connected to repentance, but it's not the same. Forgiveness of sins has ultimately to do with our standing before God. There is a creator, one holy God in three persons, who created you in his image to worship him and obey him, and you and I are sinful. We rebelled against him. We have broken his commands. We have loved and esteemed ourselves more highly than him. I don't know how to get that through to you. Do you believe that, really? 
Do you live your life in the consistent awareness that you have offended the holy God of the universe? You haven't just made mistakes. You haven't just made some bad choices. You have willfully and consistently offended and angered the one and true and living God. And forgiveness of sins is all about how to fix that. How to become acceptable to him who has only anger and wrath towards you. How to be welcomed into his family and no longer kept outside. How can I be made right before God? How can I be forgiven of, you know your sin, right? You know those sins that you particularly think that God can no longer forgive you for. How is there forgiveness for those? It isn't because it will all work out in the end. It isn't because you do good things. It isn't because your political affiliation or your church affiliation. It isn't because of the amount of money in your bank account. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only place that all of the sin and arrogance and rebellion and lying and cheating and all of it can be forgiven before God. Because Jesus took on your sin for you and paid the penalty and he gave you his holiness, his goodness, his righteousness. To be forgiven by God is to be accepted by God. That's it. You were outside of the kingdom of God because of your sin. And the only way in is through Christ because he forgives and washes away all of your sin. You will never, ever, ever accept that until you become completely displeased with yourself. Until you lose all hope in yourself. Until you stop believing the lie that you're good. This is a particular problem for kids growing up in Christian homes. That you are, comparatively to the world, pretty good, hopefully. You don't, you don't do the things that a lot of the kids do. You're just not included in some of the filth. And you can take on a pride for that. You're a good girl. You're a good boy. You're not. That thought itself is showing you how depraved you are. So apart from Christ, we have no acceptance with God. And so those are the words of this life. Christ is our life. Next week, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we consistently say in the Lord's Supper that only wretches are welcome. Only prostitutes are welcome. Only Democrats are welcome. Because all Republicans think you're righteous. Right? I mean, if you're a Democrat, they all think they're righteous, but we're not that mostly here, so I can beg on Democrats, but I'd rather beg on you because you're so proud in your political affiliation.
Do we believe Jeremiah 17.9 or don't we? Do, is your heart deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? <laughs> but that's Democrats. That's prostitutes. Right? That's abortion doctors. That's rapists. That's not me. So this is why they rejoice after being flogged within an inch of their life. Because they deserve eternal destruction and damnation apart from the holy God. And they have been given acceptance with God. Bring it on. They rejoice. They're part of a church that has their back. That isn't ashamed of them. God even grants them this common grace of having public support in this dude Gamaliel. God's care for them and the deliverance of the angels. But even if they didn't have all of those things, they still have Christ. They've went from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, from death to life, from under the wrath of God to being a son and daughter of God to having eternal endless misery to eternal endless joy. That's why they rejoice, because they have repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's why they won't stop speaking about Christ. The reason that we don't speak of Christ outside of here, is just, our hearts do not grasp what we've been given in the gospel. This is what keeps so many of you from singing. How can you not sing about these things? How can't you make an utter fool of yourself here every Sunday where you notice that there is this open chairs around you consistently because people don't want to sit by you anymore because you're such an embarrassment? (laughs) So don't stop talking about Christ. Why? Because he is your acceptance with God. That is so precious to you and so incredible to you and so amazing to you that you just can't shut up about it. Like, stop talking about masks. Stop talking about vaccines. Stop talking about this. Talk about Jesus. 